0: Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve.
1: Uh, I'm Harvey Asher, a sexaholic, and as many of you know from previous talks here, this is a get-together. It's not a classic essay meeting. It's based on Uh, 12 to 13 articles. Yeah, uh, hi, Harvey. Hi. Over the years uh, that I have published in the essay, and what I'm doing here is I am actually reading the article without any commentary, other than if the dates are wrong. And after I read it, I leave it up to questions and answers. We close exactly, we end the meeting in an hour, but I leave it open after that hour for people who have not had an opportunity to ask some questions and would like to do so. Uh, For a while, we keep it open. Uh, We... uh, Hey, Yoli, good to see you. Uh, we, We begin with no readings, but we begin with some breathing and the serenity prayer. So let's take a few moments and just do some deep inhales and deep exhales, and then it will be followed by the serenity. serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I'm Harvey Asher, sexaholic. I've been sexually sober since March 8th of 1984. The chapter, the article I'm reading is called Forgiveness, Another Tool of Recovery. Hey, Joanne. Yes, my mother once stabbed me. I was probably 15 years old when it happened. I'm now 72. No, nope, I'm 81. I could never use the word stab until I had been sexually sober for many years in SA. Instead, I would say that I was a very unruly adolescent and that one day I got my mother so infuriated that she went to hit me. The closest object she could find to strike me was with a bread knife in the process of protecting myself from being hit with a knife i raised my arms and she accidentally cut me i had to be taken to a nearby emergency room where i required stitches for the wound this is how i would relate the story to others it took many years in essay before i could be honest enough with myself to relate what really happened. The fact is, my mother stabbed me in my right arm. If I had not raised my arm, I could have been stabbed in the chest. That is what happened. Why is it important for me to tell myself and others the truth? Because only by speaking the truth could I realize how sick my mother was only a very ill mother would have stabbed her own son. Once I realized the truth, my long-term anger toward my mother turned into forgiveness. For a sexaholic like me, anger can turn into resentment, but maintaining anger toward a sick person is very difficult. As I've read in the big book, we realize that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick, though we did not like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us. They, like ourselves, were sick too. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. A.A. page 66 to 67. I have no other choice than to see that my mother was sick. If I don't take this approach, I will remain angry and resentful, and resentment is lethal to my program. As the big book says, it is plain that a life which includes deep resentment leads only to futility and unhappiness. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns and we drink again. And with us, to drink is to die. AA page 66. For 35 years, my mother and I never discussed this incident with each other. If it had not been for the permanent scar on my arm, it might seem that I had never been stabbed, that it was only a bad dream. In 1988, after being sober for a few years, I attended an international conference in Rochester, New York. I was deeply touched by the Essanon speaker who described the inner healing journey she had experienced toward her mother. I was so moved by her share that I went straight into the hotel lobby and telephoned my mother. I found myself saying, mom, just calling to say, I love you. Her response shocked me. Harvey, how could you love me after what I did to you when you were younger? To my surprise, the following words came not only out of my mouth, but also out of my heart. Mom, I forgave you a long time ago, just as I hope my children will forgive me for any of the problematic things I did to them. Even though she started the event, she stated the event in vague terms, this was the first time my mother had ever alluded to it. This was the best amends she was able, capable (laughs) of making to me. She had been holding this pain in silently for decades. This was her gift to me and to herself to finally bring what she had done to me into the light. It was the white book section called Step Eight and a Half, we read. We take the action of forgiving, even when we don't feel forgiving. Most of us have never seemed to feel forgiving until we take that inner action of giving up our right to resent. Practicing forgiveness through our hearts, as we think of these people, then aloud, perhaps even without sponsor. We forgive every person on our list and keep on forgiving them every time resentment returns. Why forgive? For us it is very simple. If we don't forgive, we're never free. Unless we forgive, we're not forgiven. We remain chained to our wrongs, unable to free ourselves, leave the dark dungeons of our past and walk in the sunlight of love. If we are able to give this aspect of our program its due, we should give it its special emphasis. Surrendering our resentments, we ask for willingness to forgive all persons guilty of real or imagined wrongs against us and forgive each one. That comes from the essay book, page 125, 126. My mother eventually moved to the city where my family lived. She subsequently had a stroke and became paralyzed in her right arm and leg. I was able to be near her for the last decade of her life. She died in my arms at the age of 89. If it had not been for my 12-step recovery, if I were not sexually sober. I'm sure that the forgiveness process would not have happened. I would have continued to live in hate and resentment toward my mother. I would have missed the joy of my relationship with her. I would never have been free. As it says in our 11th step prayer, Lord, make me a channel of thy peace, that where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. For it is by forgetting that one finds, is by forgiving that one is forgiven, is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen. Page 99, 12 and 12. I am grateful to be able to share with you this wonderful tool of recovery, the tool of recovery. Forgiveness, Harvey A, Essay, March 2012.
2: Wow, thank you so much.
0: Yeah,
2: I didn't think I had so much of a connection to forgiveness. There was a block in my heart until you started reading and I started living my own experience with my mother and my experience of my amends with my mother when I said to her, I want to make amends for everything that I've done. And she brought up something for 35 years she'd been living in guilt for, thinking that I hadn't forgiven her. And it made me realize that that they're so connected, the guilt and the forgiveness. And you you went into that. Um, So if people want to raise their hands um, and ask a question, they can do that. Remember that we're recording the whole session. So if you don't want to have your voice on the recording, you can send it to me privately. Um, And so we've got the classic question. First question came in privately. How does the predator being sick enable forgiving? Hitler, Himmler, Goebbels, Mengele were clearly very sick people. So what? Is that a reason to forgive what they did to my grandparents? And what if forgiving a violent spouse was part of the problem and codependency? How can it now become part of the solution?
1: Let me answer that question with a story about seven years ago, six years ago, I forgot. I was invited to Belgium, my wife and I, to speak and to give talks for this weekend in Belgium. And we accepted And somehow this thought came to me. Harvey, do you want to die with the anger and hatred you have to Nazis, to people from Germany and Poland? Do you want to die with that? And I said, no. And I made a decision at that moment that at our own expense, whatever it costs, I was going to Germany with my wife in Poland to bring the message of SA, (coughs) SA recovery. And I had an instant taken away of this anger and reason. And then something even bigger happened. I was brought up in a area where there were very few Jewish people and I would get bullied and be called a Christ killer. And I said, you are no different you are no different than people who are blaming you for something that happened 2000 years ago you are doing the same thing and i was freed And then at our own expense, we went to, to Munich and to a conference and to Poland. And in Poland, I had this it, it, unbelievable issue. I was to speak in Krakow and the big talk there. And it was right outside of Auschwitz. And I went to Auschwitz. And I said, Harvey, are you going to be able to do that and maintain these freedom feelings you're having from resentment and anger? And I did not know if it were truly a spiritual awakening or not. And I went to Auschwitz, and I went to then... The next day, did my talk at Krakow, and had such love and caring for the people in that conference, and I knew it worked. I knew it worked. I know this program works. I know it. But our intellect is going to negate the spiritual aspects, the spirituality of our heart. The brain is the most dangerous thing. I, who who through my behavior indirectly tortured my wife, kept giving her venereal diseases, and I start judging other people? So to answer you, eh, you're free to live in anger or fear. Everyone does it. I decided today to go on a two day holiday at least if not looking at the news. That's why I set myself up for anger and fear. You want to go do it? That's what the brain loves. To get us in turmoil. To listen to a brain that told us to act out. So on that note, <laughs> let's go to the next question.
2: Uh, if possible, just to... Touch on the second question that, 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 that the person asked, which is, a, it's a very different question. Is that what you know? That if, what if constantly forgiving the violent spouse was a part of that problem, that part of their codependent relationship with that spouse? How does it then become part of the solution?
1: When you forgive them by recognizing they're sick then you can ask yourself a question I've had to ask myself in recovery. Especially when almost after 21 months, my wife still wanted to be abstinent. And I realized I might never have sex again. I had to ask myself a question. Do I want to continue living with my wife or not? We're not slaves. If your marriage is too uncomfortable, get the hell out. But it doesn't mean you can't forgive people. I decided to stay in and the sex issue took care of itself like it usually does. Yeah. Codependency is a fancy word for an addiction to another person. And it hides in sex addicts because the other person is a woman and most of you guys are addicted to women. <laughs> so you can't let go. You stay drunk on your wife, whether it's through anger or whether it's through sex. Next okay.
2: question. David P. in San Antonio,
3: please. Hey, Ari. Thanks, Daniel. Uh, I've gotten a lot out of these talks. Uh, I listen to them even when they're not live. Uh, so I just really appreciate the forum and, and the format. Um, I guess my question is, and I know the having heard the answer to the first question, right? it's all fear. But I was molested at a young age by my mother's brother, a known sexual predator. and. In what I've worked out so far is, you know, I resented my parents more so for putting me out there and exposing me, uh, to this threat than the actual person, right. I've found it easy to forgive, uh, the predator, but so my father's no longer living, right. I want to forgive my mother. Uh, She's in her mid-70s. I've seen her health slowly deteriorate. And again, I'm almost shaking with the fear, right? Um, In that I have a very good suspicion that she was also um, sexually abused in her upbringing. And I I guess I don't want to harm her. You know, she doesn't know that I'm an addict. Um, She doesn't know that I have this problem and I don't want to cause her harm or maybe misplaced blame um, any insights into that? Is it possible to, you know, we say make amends where possible without hurting somebody else? Is it possible? I, I, I hope I articulated my conundrum here and Dilemma.
1: I want to tell you a funny story. My mother was probably about 88 at the time, and we were gabbing, talking, and she said, oh, yeah, my old... Every summer, we'd go to a farm and my older cousins would play with us, (laughs) play doctor and nurse with us on top of the barn. I said, your older cousins would have sex with you (laughs) when you were little kids? And she said, yeah. And I, she said, with all the cousins. And I said, Mom, that's incest. And she said, no, we were just playing with each other. <laughs> don't figure it out. I've learned. <laughs> I don't understand anything. <laughs> but what I do know is I've been marred for life by sexual abuse, it's in my cells. Okay, it's there, it happened. I've gone for EMDR work, I've done some other therapy on it. None of it's real today. The flashbacks come back, but it's not real today. Who is the biggest, the biggest predator in my life, sexually, me? The trauma, looking back at it, I gave myself. I was highly promiscuous. I had poor boundaries. I've traumatized me. It's real easy to talk about how other people traumatize me. Now, David, I'm I'm not going to answer your question because I'm going to maneuver for, in a few weeks, another article that I'm going to read is about how we don't change if we're not careful in recovery about our secret life. If your mom isn't knowing you're a recovering sex addict, it's taken a lot to avoid that subject. And we'll be talking for, you know, a session. I'll read the article I wrote from the essay on maintaining a secret life in recovery. My mother could never understand. I tell her, oh, I'm going to an essay meeting of recovering sex addict. She said, oh, what do you need meetings for? You could stop things and do things. People don't understand it anyway. But I don't have to live in secrets. Once I'm appropriately open, I do not tell my story. I say I'm a recovering lust addict, sex addict. People want to know more. I'll answer the simple truth. But if we don't share it, How did they ever share if she had been abused? You know, and I've been sexually abused by so many people, I kind of lost count. But I laugh about it sometimes, not in a joking way, but My life was endangered from physical abuse. So as rough as the sexual abuse was, I had tremendous amount of physical abuse. And similar to you, my father would just watch. So my anger wasn't towards my mother, who was the abuser, but to my father, who just stood by and watched. And I had much more work to do on my father in recovery than I had on my mother in recovery. Now, as you know, this is, I don't talk for essay. I'm not a spokesman for essay. This is just my experience, stress and hope. Okay? All I know is the less secrets... The less insanity, the more secrets, the more insanity. That's an old AA phrase. We tend not to say it to people close to us, not because we won't say it, it's because we still don't believe we have a disease. We still think we're bad getting good, rather than that we were born this way and have sexual and have a disease that we're sick getting well. My sexual abuse did not cause my sexual addiction, only my story. I was a sex, inappropriate from the time I was two, three years old. What it did affect was how I acted out. This I was sexually abused my leaven pretty thoroughly by those kids who were protecting me from being bullied for my religion and I had to pay them, they made me pay them for sexual things with them. So my disease followed that type of pattern. So I'm not minimizing abuse. But it did, in my story, did not cause my disease. Now, this is a real important concept. because This is a 12-step program concerning um, the disease model. But some very famous, especially in the 80s and 90s, famous people felt who wrote certain famous books that it's... Abuse that caused sex addiction. They might be right, but that's not my story. Okay, next question.
2: Okay, go ahead, Gene. We love you, Gene.
3: Oh, Hello, Harvey, this is Gene. Hey, Gene. And uh, what I've been pondering is something that I I read when I was working on forgiveness is from Khalil Gibran. And uh, you probably know him well or better than I do, but one thing he said on forgiveness was forgiveness means never mentioning it again, and that that has stuck with me for some reason. I um, I find kind of a conflict with that, and yet maybe you could help me with that. I, I don't know how to uh, deal with that.
1: There's this great book. It's basically about AA, but it brings in all kinds of spiritual issues. And he said that forgiveness cannot be done purposefully. You cannot forgive someone intellectually. It can't be done because you can't forget. It's there. It's a memory. Whether it's a distorted memory, whether it's an accurate memory, it's a memory. You can't forget it. But that's not our problem. The problem is when we can't forget, we remember it, it's accompanied by anger. And that anger then turns into revisiting it to become resentment, to revisit the anger. This person says that you can't forgive someone. But what happens is when you let go of the revisiting and the anger and the resentment, a natural process occurs of forgiveness. You don't even know it's happening. It's a process that's not intellectual. Intellectual that the spiritual part is letting go of the anger. Now, why is it important? AA says it beautifully. And this is a little traumatic for people like many of us who have been sexually abused by predators. It's because... Most of those people aren't even alive, a lot of them, or they're not around anymore. And we're giving them free rent in our head. AA consistently says, you're giving that person free rent in your head. You know, I was reading... In the same book where it talks about the spiritual aspect of imperfection and how in AA, how do we deal with all this anger and resentment in a most unusual way? Paradoxical. We say, pray for the bastard. Pray for the bastard. We acknowledge they're bastards, but we're told to pray for them, for health, wealth, happiness, all the good things we want for ourselves. That juxtaposition gets us this level of knowing I am so imperfect. They're imperfect too. Until I could see my imperfections without shame. But do the imperfections of saying, I'm a human being. I will always be imperfect or else I'd be God. And that would be a very lonely place to be if I were God. So I'm going to be imperfect and you all are going to be imperfect. How would Jess say it, my old essay sponsor? Jess would say, as you've heard me say this over and over, we take a dirty dish and we put it in dirty water, and the miracle is they both come out clean. What does that mean? Buy this crazy nut, call someone in the program another crazy nut, and we get off the phone and we're both less crazy. That's the miracle. It's through our imperfections. If you notice, I keep shifting to stories. Otherwise, this would be a lecture. We don't need lectures. You don't need someone telling you how to deal with predators. You need someone to say, yeah, I understand. I had all kinds of predators. I understand. By the way, Bill says it so well in the book. This is He says we need other help, too. It's not only part of the 12 steps of surrendering and going and getting professional help. I needed EMD work to deal with my sexual abuse issues. I called. I was sober about 20 years and I was at my job, and out of nowhere, I said, Harvey, therapy, talk therapy never works for you because you seduce, you pull in the therapist. They get mesmerized, it doesn't work for you. I called up the Sex and Rape Abuse Center. I said, I need EMD work without any talk therapy. (laughs) And I was known in the community and professional. And I went to the sex and rape abuse center like anyone else. And I got a series of EMD and did it. tremendous help. Each of us have our different paths to get our relief. That's why I get so upset. <laughs> Many of you have heard me when you say, Oh, God's doing this. God's doing this. Bullshit. God's doing this indirectly. He brought me to the program. How much more does he have to do? He is not going to stop me from masturbating. I have to leave my hand in certain places away. I have to dress appropriately when I go to the bathroom. I have to call a sponsor. Now, God led me here. And what does the book say? It says God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So, so many people keep thinking God's going to do all this for them, which totally eliminates freedom of choice. You know, in AA, they say it so beautifully that God respects us so much that there's a door but the doorknob is only on our side of the door, and we have to just touch the doorknob and open it the size of a mustard seed, and he will. It will come in. So, why have a twelve-step program? Why go to meetings if God's going to do this all for me? I work my ass off in this program. And God, for me, I'm only speaking for me, gets a bum deal. He did this miracle. He had Roy discover and create the essay program based on this miracle that Bill W., he divinely inspired Bill W. And we have this program. What the hell do we need this program for if we think God's going to do it all for us? And what's grace? Grace is when, (laughs) for things we don't deserve. Yeah, there's room for grace. But I wouldn't rely on grace only when you're an addict. They have this wonderful saying that God is so powerful and so omnipotent, so omnipresent, that if a recovering alcoholic takes an unopened bottle of liquor and puts it up towards his mouth, God is so powerful, he can knock it right out of his hands. But statistically, he doesn't do that. So my AA sponsor, who is a very devout man, would say to me, Harvey, don't get too good before you get too well. if you have diabetes, whatever you do, and you're supposed to take insulin, don't say, God, you take my diabetes away. No, you take your insulin every day. God had that discovered, invented for us. Now, don't forget, this is only my opinion, and you know about opinions, everyone has one, (laughs) <laughs> I won't go into the details. All I could say is if you don't expect to kind of work this program, it's not gonna go easy to utilize the steps. okay, I'm rambling next question
2: um yeah i i this is a question that's come from the from from the group, and also it's something that's rolling around in my head Harvey. um you said before about how we are basically our biggest qualifiers ourselves. And I've I, I've understood that myself over time. And this is about forgiving ourselves. Um, can you talk about forgiving ourselves? The question that came out from the other side is, as a single young man in this movement age, how can I forgive myself for my predatory past actions? Except that I Accept that I can be potentially charged with sex crimes and yet take a chance in recovery to date, pursue marriage and have children, knowing it could all be lost. So can you talk about forgiving oneself and that whole thing, which also connects to the guilt that I was saying before, they're so tied in. It's
1: very difficult because most people in this program do not accept the disease model. So you still think you were not powerless. I am not responsible for my disease. I am responsible for my recovery. So people who keep holding on to I'm bad getting good, my morality is bad, I didn't listen to my church or my synagogue, I'm going to go to hell, I'm an evil person, they just haven't ever accepted the disease model which the whole 12-step program is based on. Before the doctor's opinion, I mean, before Bill's story is the doctor's opinion. If you don't get the doctor's opinion, how can you think you're powerless? The whole program's based on a disease model. I am without power. Now to answer your question more directly, and by the way, I think I saw Sylvia and Gene, and that was so phenomenal. I don't see them now, but it was Sylvia's really here. Uh, Sylvia has even more recovery in this program than I do. So um she was in that first year, and Jean, God bless them. So I have now over 36 years to look back over my pre-recovery days. I am convinced I was delirious for years. I was so full of chemicals in my brain between the alcohol, between the endorphins of sexual fantasies and acting out I was delirious. Memories come back to me and I say, Harvey, it's impossible. You couldn't have done that. I did. You couldn't have. It's insane. It's dangerous. It's this, it's that. I was so drunk. I was drunk before I ever got to where I was going to act out just thinking about it, getting in the car. I was already delirious. Now, most people don't accept this model in recovery. I've seen it for decades and decades. And we have a tremendous relapse rate. You know, through meditation, you be learn mindfulness through the 11th step. And mindfulness helps you see all the programming that has been put into our brains through family, religion, government, culture, society. We don't even know these aren't our thoughts. And one of the toughest thoughts is to get rid of this. I'm bad getting good, not sick getting well. I wish people luck, but I need the medical model for my recovery.
2: So you think that forgiveness of oneself comes, uh, comes about as a result of taking that first step and then continuing and having a spiritual experience as the result of all the steps?
1: Well, the 11th step prayer says that it's through forgiving that we are forgiven. You can't experience forgiveness for yourself until you've learned to forgive other people. The, the prayer of St. Francis, the 11th step prayer. And no, mo- many people are not willing to forgive. I want to tell you about my wife, this woman I had given venereal diseases time and again, such embarrassments and all. In 36 years, she has never brought up my path. Ever. Ever. Never brought it up. Her sponsor told her never to bring up the past. No, nope. Many guys, especially the guys and their wives, could be the women with their husbands, but many of the guys are so addicted to their wives and they'll let the wives just go on and on, beating them up, doing whatever verbally well, I sponsored a guy, and he had about seven years of sobriety. His wife was um, very religious, fundamentalist in in their uh, denomination. And she was all for him doing it through church, and it was very disappointing. He was doing it through 12 steps. And she kept saying, How do I know you're really sober? How do you know I'm, how, do, how will I know you're really sober? And he would bring this up to me year after year. One day he brings it up to me and I go home. And I looked at Nancy. And I said, honey, how do you know I'm really sober? How do you know? She shocked me. She said, I watch you hit your knees twice a day she said I watch you hit your knees twice a day do your prayers I watch you um, run off to meetings all the time and she said and I eavesdrop on your converse telephone conversations with the responses <laughs> you never know how people know you're sober (laughs) oh boy it's good to laugh isn't it Sylvia I love you can you wave to everyone Sylvia maybe she can't hear me can you wave to us (laughs) Sylvia came in when Jess came in you want to talk about some founding people. And for Sylvia and Jean as the Essanon, what they went through to kind of pioneer all this, I came in the year after Sylvia. Someone mentioned somewhere the other day that they like when I bring in history, too, about an essay that history the first one um the two oldest recovering people and have the most recovery are two women and uh, sylvia is one of those two uh i have the next i have the most is a man and then mike c comes just a few weeks after me and um You could never have told me the year I came in that I would be giving talks. And chances are Sylvia would say the same thing. You cannot know easily God's will for us until you look back and you see what my AA sponsor taught me. Harvey, you couldn't have missed one of those low-life things you did, even one of them, and not be ready. It took everything you did to get ready to be in recovery. And I look back, and I see this unbelievable uh, tapestry of knots. They're just loaded with knots. But every now and then, I get to walk in front of the tapestry and see this beautiful picture. While it's happening, it all looks like knots. But every now and then, you get to walk in front of the tapestry and see the most magnificent work of, of art. And you know who did it? Not us. Not us. And so much of what we do is play God, telling God what he should be doing. And the big book teaches us over and over. That wonderful prayer, may thy will be done, not my will. May thy will be done, not my will. Okay, next question. Oh, we we have about four minutes officially, and then for anyone who wants to stay longer, I'll be on for a while longer. Next
2: question. Yeah, just a note on one thing you just said, we actually have uh, Catherine speaking on The Sim this year, the other lady that you were talking about, she's gonna be joining us this year for The Sim. Terrific. Yeah, okay, John L, go ahead.
4: Hi everybody, Uh, John L and I'm a sex addict and I'm in Boston. Um, Harvey, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of your shares that I've been able to hear on the Daily Reprieve. And, uh, I was blessed when a friend of mine tuned me into these, um, things that you're doing, these shares. Um, I'm, I'm relatively new to SA. I've been in recovery for 21 years in and out out and in different S fellowships. Um I think you're, what you just said is a good lead into what I want to ask when you say thy will be done. Um as a young child I was neglected. My father had a penchant for teasing us all. Um my mom sexually abused me by using infant rectal thermometers on me until I was a teen when I was sick. My father died when I was nine and left me with her and for three years for every three years after that I lost all of my grandparents. So I entered the world the light, an adult as an adult of out of control rampant just out of control sex addict and I didn't know what was wrong with me until 21 years ago and I I made a discovery that there is this thing called sex addiction, and I have struggled mightily. And I've thought of myself as an atheist. Funnily enough, I got, in Hebrew, Yahweh tattooed on my arm. I know that's offensive to many, but I did. And on the other arm, I got the solar system tattooed because I believe in nature and I surround myself with nature and I believe that my background is the universe. But I'm going to say something which might offend people, but so be it. I am pissed off at my higher power. I don't know what my higher power had in mind for me. And Thy will be done and all that. I am so angry. I can't forgive my mother. I can't forgive my father. I can't forgive my relatives who just stood by and didn't even know really what was going on. And I am, is so sad and broken and shattered and I do EMDR twice a week for the last year and a half. I'm just looking for an answer, you know. I want to have this relationship with my, my higher power. You know, I I used to drive down the road or sit on sit and I would curse God and and then I heard Earl H say you can't be angry at a god that you don't believe in. And so I realized I'm not an atheist. I'm just pissed off at God. So I'm looking for some help. I don't know what the answer is. That's, that's where I'm at. And um, I, I guess I ask you what would you say to a guy like me? That's...
1: You want my answer? <laughs> Only through my experience with the mother who stabbed me. By the way, I, I learned something every day. I never knew I was sexually abused because of the thermometers. (laughs) I gotta tell you a story. This guy went to a psychiatrist and he told him how he never got a bicycle. Never got a bicycle. And the psychiatrist said, that's emotional abuse. Emotional abuse. And the guy says to him, but doc, It was during the Depression. None of my friends had bicycles either. Why I tell that story is, (laughs) in my upbringing, all they had was rectal thermometer. So I never knew there was anything different. So, (laughs) and um, you see how I'm laughing, not at you. If you don't get a sense of humor with this disease, man, you've had it. You've had it. We're some of the most abused, but we're also some of the sickest people who have abused others too. (laughs) We of all people. My sponsor would say, we, the most tolerated become the most intolerant. And as you can see in that corner, I have a clown. He taught me I have to learn to laugh at myself, my crazy antics. I, the most tolerated, let my wife do one little thing wrong and I'm all upset (laughs) and she put up getting venereal diseases from me. It's all part of my first step in sanity, which is we're restored to sanity. So you want to keep getting angry, especially God. If, <laughs> like God really gives a shit if I masturbate or not. No, I give a crap because it destroys my life. I can't stop. How can God be anything but a loving God when he watched me do every despicable thing I did for decades and loved me so much, he brought me to the program. And if you don't have that God, borrow him. Because that's what I had to do. This guy in AA who had the motorcycle and the chains and all, and he said, I've been in all these prisons, and I've been in all these mental hospitals. And he said, God watched me do every one of those low-life things I did. And he loved me so much, he brought me to AA. And I said at that moment, I want that God. And I borrowed him over 35 years ago, almost 37. It's over in AA, 37 years. And I called him. Greg's God for years. And over the years, the God of my understanding has changed time and again to where it is not something I think about, it's something I experience. It's the ocean, and I'm the wave. And you're another way. And when we look down, even though our crests look different, when we look down, we see we're all made of the same water. And that's where the 11th step comes from. I mean, I get in my 11th step, and I, you know, you could stay in pain as long as you want, it's optional. I had to just surrender. Had to surrender, whether it was true or not. I mean, we're told everything in life, most of it's not true. It's We, we hook on to some of it that makes us comfortable. Because truth is just perspective. One person thinks truth is Here, one person thinks truth is there. So I find the truth that's important for me, and that's a 12-step program. And the 12-step program says, love and tolerance is our code. The joy of living is our theme. And action is the work. Action. So you You act as if until you start believing it. I want to tell you that um, I had my beginning change on all this in Al-Anon when a woman suggested I read this Reader's Digest article. And it was about this woman in Holland who she and her sister, during the Second World War, they were Christians, hid Jews in their house, saved the Jews. But they caught her. They put her in a concentration camp with her sister, and she watched this guard murder her sister. When the war was over, she decided to go lecturing all over the world Unforgiveness. One day she's in this hallway giving this talk and she sees the guard who murdered her sister and she says to herself, he's here. I hate him. I hate him. I can't forgive him. I hate him. And she tries not looking. And at the end of the talk, She goes to the reception line. She said, I'm not going to look. I'm not going to look. I hate him. I hate him. Why should he be here? Oh, I hate him. And he walks up to her on the reception line. And he looks at her and says, I know you know who I am. I know you know who I am. And he puts his hand out and he says, do you forgive me? And she said, I hate him. I hate him. I can't ever forgive him, God. I hate him. But all of a sudden she said, but God, let me put my hand in his. Help me. And she experienced forgiveness. Years and years later, I read this in the Reader's Digest, maybe 20 years later, we're on a trip to Holland. We're on a train. I said, Nancy, that's such an interesting little town called Holland. Let's get off the train and kind of browse. It was a Sunday. Only thing that was open, it said was a free museum. And you walked upstairs. <laughs> you walked up the steps, and there was a little living room, and this man came in to give this little talk. It was Corey to house. It was the exact place that I read about that helped me have forgiveness towards my mother. And you talk about God's will and forgiveness. And what this woman had been able to do. But I have to be willing to have these things removed. We cannot remove them. The sixth and seventh step tells us that. That's praying God thinking we could remove our own defects. No, the sixth and seventh step Says we have to be ready and humbly ask him to remove it. Ask God to remove. It. And this gal who did so much to me, and also she had this habit of hitting my children and my daughter-in-laws and hitting me in public, slapping me as an adult in recovery. And one day she came to one of, my mother came to one of our family festivals and she hit my daughter-in-law. And my daughter-in-law told me about it. And I determined, I went down for breakfast in the hotel and I was determined. And I said, I am going to tell my mother never, ever to come to one of our family affairs again. She has wrecked every one of these. And so she comes down and I go into a separate booth with her to tell her to get the hell out of our lives. And out of my mouth came my amends to her. And I was freed. I was freed. And my mother eventually moved to my city. And she was 89 and she kept getting congestive heart failure. And her nurse was an SA. And I kept dragging my mother to get help. And it was just rough. And the gal confronted me, she said, Harvey, you won't let your mother die. You're waiting for her to become the mother you always wanted. And so Nancy comes to the 6.30 meeting in the morning and says, your mother is, I had taken her to the hospital. Your mother is dying now. And I ran to the hospital. And I remembered from that meeting in Rochester, the woman's talk, her brother kept sexually abusing her and her mother knew about it for years. And then as an adult, he continued to abuse her. And she finally in recovery did away with any relationship to these people. And she gets a call that her mother's dying in the hospital to please come. And she came to the hospital and she was sitting by her mother's bed. And she said, what do I do, God? What do I do? And all of a sudden, she was led to sit in the bed with her mother and hold her mother and tell her mother. All the things she had hoped her mother could have told her, she instead told her mother how she loved her and she cared about her. And her mother died in her arms. And so there I was at the hospital, sitting with my mother next to the bed, and all of a sudden I remembered the story from 20 years before about, My mother died about 18 years ago. And I remembered it. And I got into the bed and I held my mother while she died. And I told her all the good things about her and any amends I needed to make further. And it was the most wonderful parting for me and her. As I had them give her. She was drowning in her own flu. Now, if you all want to keep the anger and resentment, go for it. I don't want it. Regretfully, I still get it sometimes, but I don't want it. (laughs) There's dead silence. Come on. <laughs> okay.
5: <laughs> hey, Harvey. It's Shloymi here.
1: Yeah, Shloime.
5: Um, You know, I just uh, listening to all this, and I, I must say that, um, number one, your energy is great. You look like a 40-year-old, 30, you know. Great energy. I love it. <laughs> um, and then I relate a lot. Um, I must say my father uh, died um, four weeks ago. And a lot of the people over here know that my relationship, there is definitely a lot of uh, past um, anger that I had. And um, I have done a lot of work on it uh, in recovery that I'm very grateful for. I cannot imagine um, losing my father with so much anger and um, pain. Um, and I've done work, went to uh, on site. I did therapy on it a lot, and um, my I I was caring for my father the last few months. Really was caring for him. I was never able to even touch him. That's how that's how uh, that's how I felt. I wasn't able to touch him, talk to him. I was embarrassed with him. Um, I could talk about this for the longest time, but the amount of healing, it was one step at a time that I touched his hand, touched his stomach, Um, and um, someone in the program told me, you know, tell your father you love him and give him a kiss, and the interesting thing is that my mother told me the same thing that, that same day. When I, you know, my mother tell, told me, tell, tell Tati that you love him and the amount of good energy that happened that since then, you know, we, we, again, it's healing takes a long time, but I'm very grateful for the amount of healing we did. I did. I had in this, pre- my father also had this healing, you know, I was able to tell him, you know, Tati, I love you. You're, you know, you're a great father. And, um. And when he was sick and vulnerable, he was much more um, receptive for vulnerability uh, because he he needed he needed the care, he needed my care. Um, I want to wish this to everyone, anyone who has any any pain. Um, You know, the part of me, part of my process of dealing with the pain was also being angry, but I need to be angry in a safe environment with a safe therapist. um, EMDR has helped me tremendously. I don't know how these things work, but they work. They do work. Um, And even though today I still have some anger, but the amount of charge it has is much less. Like you said, memories don't go away. I will remember all this. And, but it, it doesn't have that amount of energy. And so forgiveness is a gift. It, it's, it's, I believe it's a gift from God. I I have watched my father die. I, 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 I looked in his eyes. It was just moments before he died. And, this look that he gave me was, Shloimi, I love you and you love me. And there's nothing more I can add. It's it's just, it's an experience that no money in this world could pay this. So thank you, Harvey. Thank you. We're gonna close now. Yeah, Daniel. Yes.
1: That, Daniel, it's R from the Netherlands. And I came in late because I didn't know about the time change. Yes. And I was, I
2: was needing it so much. And I would love to ask Harvey. I have this twin sister and I need to forgive her. And um, she was always there when I was
1: lusting. But also, it seems as if she's now bicycling through my life. And of course, I also so immensely like I love her. But I cannot stand the 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 the, the differences between um, the passions and the aggression. It's also totally different.
2: It annoys me. I get you know, and I need to forgive. I need I need a new pair of glasses. Could Harvey please say anything about it?
1: Yeah, to forgive someone doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's some kind of maybe disconnect that we're told of that we're superhuman beings. Mm-hmm. Um, I have wonderful sons. Uh, I had my mom and dad. I went and picked them as friends. I love them. I interact with them. Now my mother makes she rest in peace. deceased but I wouldn't pick them as friends. Now Mm -hmm. I have a nine and a half year younger sister who I never knew. I went off to college, she was real young. In adulthood, we became friends. Mm -hmm. So it's not about who you're gonna be around, it is about being civil to people but forgiveness is a spiritual aspect. And it's not necessarily, I guess the best way to say it is we're not giving people free rent in your head. With anger and resentment, we're, you know, when we're angry at someone we're taking the poison. They don't even know we're annoyed and amiss. They're hardly thinking about us.
5: Yeah. Hi, Paul, Sexaholic. Uh, can I ask a question? Go for Paul from me. Romania. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Arvi. Uh, if I had the resentment on somebody and I, I, I've done a step 10 on them, then I've done amends on them, and the resentment uh, the resentment keeps on popping up, even if I, you know, I believe I've been, I have been I went into details with it. I mean, I, it wasn't a general amend. I was specific about what I'm doing amends about, but I feel like I still have the resentment, sometimes rarely, but the tape plays again Uh, Is there a problem with me? Is there a problem with the way I did the amends? Do I need to, I don't know, keep on doing a step 10 inventory on them?
0: Basically the question is, how can I forgive and be free of them? You, you, You bring up this
1: very important subject that we all do. We still try to be in control of results. So we do our best, we let go of resentment as best we can. We ask God to remove it, whatever the method. Sometimes I have to put a rubber band on my wrist. When the person comes up, unless you're into masochism, it's very effective to when an intrusive thought comes in to flip the rubber band. Because the brain doesn't like that that sensation. And then time takes care of a lot of things when we're not revisiting the angle. See, we, we go back to it. Ugh. I'm powerless over it sometimes, so I've learned different techniques. This program is a very Big, the, the disease is very big. I need a very big toolbox. Over the years, you learn more and more of these tools. And then when one doesn't work, you're pulling out another one. Uh, for me, I use the same one for anger, resentment, as I do for lust. God, whatever it is I'm looking for in that thought, may I find it in you. Okay? And then you kind of do a little written exercise on what is it you're looking for in that thought? What is it? And can you find it in your higher power? If not, I suggest you tweak your higher power. (laughs) Where you have one that can do those things for you, that you can find in your higher power. What you're looking for, whether it's in a lust object, or an intrusive thought, or in a resentment. This is a spiritual program, it's not therapy. It's a spiritual program. Okay. Now what is spirituality? One person says it's acknowledging my imperfections. So then I do need a God, as <laughs> I know I'm not perfect. But when it comes push to shove. The Latin word is spiritus, which means breath. So when all else fails, I take in some deep inhales and exhales. Breath. God breathes into, you know, according to certain books, that first person breath. Sometimes we get so sophisticated that all we have to do is take in some deep inhales and exhales at that
4: moment. Harvey, thanks a million. It's Usher. this was one of the most powerful ones I've ever heard. And I have a lot of work to do on forgiveness. And I still have a lot of love to do. And if I remember by one of the previous conventions, I met you and I came over to you and I told you that I have a resentment of my father in law and I don't want to forgive him. And you told me, how about you send him over a message? Hi, I miss you. And I told you, hells no, I'm not doing that. Yeah.
1: Have you done it yet? Nope. (laughs) Do it today. Tell them I'm just thinking of you. Want to tell you I love you. I do that with my kids when I don't hear from them or I'm angry at them. If I take an opposite behavior, my sponsor would say, Harvey, whatever you're thinking, do the opposite. And statistically, you'll come out better.
4: Thank you, Harvey. Thank you.
0: I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com